The Tom Woods Show, episode 1079. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Friends, my away carry-on helps make my travel a pleasure. It's super strong, yet lightweight, and it's even got its own USB charger built in. I'm like the king of the airport with this thing. Take $20 off your suitcase order when you head to awaytravel.com woods and use promo code woods at checkout. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here, talking today about the idea of utopia, but we're really talking about Thomas More's work, Utopia, and perhaps using that as a jumping-off point to talk about the idea of utopia, utopian societies, utopian experiments. And we're having this conversation with Justine Brown, who holds a Ph.D. in English literature from the University of Toronto. She's the author of All Possible Worlds, Utopian Experiments in British Columbia, and has reflected quite a bit on the significance of Thomas More's work. So I thought we would have this interesting conversation today. Justine, welcome. Hello. I'm very glad to be here. Never talked about Thomas More on the show. I mean, maybe in passing, I might have referred to him in connection with Henry VIII, but I, I'm i not sure. Maybe I have. I certainly have not ever discussed his work, Utopia. And you sent me a fairly challenging and certainly interesting account of what he was up to in that work, which has been, as you know, a source of controversy for quite some time. Before we get into the interpretation of it, why don't you set the stage by telling us a little bit about him and just at least the background of what you're going to find if you crack open Utopia? Yeah, so Thomas More, Sir Thomas More, is uh, probably most famous for one, for having written Utopia, and two, for having been executed by Henry VIII. Um, he was uh, chancellor, and, and this is he was executed in 1535. And um, when Henry VIII wanted to get a an annulment from uh, Catherine of Aragon, uh, Thomas More refused to go along with that. He wouldn't sign the oath. Um, he uh, just resisted. He tried to, they were very close, um, uh, Henry VIII and Thomas More. Um, so he tried not to embarrass Henry VIII, but because of he was a very ardent Catholic, and this would mean that uh, that Henry VIII had broken with the Catholic Church and basically placed himself, uh, appointed himself as Pope so that he could then give himself an annulment and marry Anne Boleyn. Um, Moore uh, couldn't accept that. And he sort of tried to retire from public life. um, And Henry VIII more or less pursued him. And the result was uh, a trial and Moore's execution, and at the time it was this was considered very shocking uh, in Europe because Moore was very famous as a humanist. He was considered one of the great um, writers and thinkers of the time. Uh, he was very close with uh, Erasmus, for example. But he, Moore wrote a great deal, but we know him best for Utopia. And people sort of assume that Utopia, you know, not having maybe read it, they they assume that Moore was describing his ideal society. But um, it's pretty clear uh, as soon as we crack the book open that it's it, Moore is very um, playful, uh, right for the beginning with the title. 
um, the title, where he coined the, the word utopia, and he was in it punning on two Greek words which sound very similar. One means a perfect place, which sounds like what we would expect, but the other means no place or nowhere. So right away, built into the title, we have this idea that the perfect place is non-existent. And there are similar sorts of jokes all through the book. So um, the the man who claims to have visited Utopia, his name would translate to mean messenger of nonsense. Um, The the city is called uh, Air Castle. Uh, There's another city called Tall Storia. So that sort of joke, uh, there's a, a river called No Water. These are, these are um, linguistic jokes that Moore would have expected his audience to get that was originally written in Latin. So he would have, these are people who would have had a little Greek at least. So right away you have this um, you know, insistence that what is being described is fiction. All right, well, let me jump in on that because I went around asking, I asked two friends of mine who would mm-hmm. be knowledgeable in this area what they thought of what you had to say. Yeah. And by and large, they agreed with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them wholeheartedly. One said, uh, uh, one wrote me this, Tom, although Moore remains controversial, this is how I read Utopia. She looks right to me. It's definitely a mocking of Utopia. So I, I wanted to solicit outside opinions because it's an area where I'm not an expert. But then the other person said, uh, and I'd like to give you a, a chance to address this. Mm-hmm. Um, he says that you know, he's willing to go along with um the idea that Moore isn't a communist and right. isn't just offering a blueprint for the good society and the idea of utopia as monastic living for married people seems plausible. But he says, my problem with this argument is that it ignores part one of utopia when there's all the dialogue about the injustices prevalent in England at the time, for example, capital punishment for theft and the discussion of how social reform in England might be accomplished. I've always considered this section too lengthy to be a mere frame pretext for the story of utopia itself. What do you think about that? Well, I'm not trying to argue that we should just dismiss it out of hand as a pure practical joke, but I do think that we know two things about Moore. um, You know, we know a lot about Moore, but two things we definitely know. He was very playful. His family never knew when he was joking or serious. He was known as a child from for playing elaborate practical jokes, and he was a very devout Catholic. Um, so I, I think that to the degree that what we see in Utopia is uh, Moore's idea of a perfect society, I think it, it's more commensurate with an ideal Catholic society. Um, so what, and, and what do we know about monasteries? They are clean, you know, ideally, of course, they are clean, they're orderly. Um, there's a, a sort of a work light, uh, balance between manual labor and intellectual uh, work. Um, there are places where there there is no money, of course. And in Utopia, things are are, are um, uh, families live together in groups. It's keeping things small enough so that money you know, arguably wouldn't be necessary because the scale is, is small enough. So um, I, I, I think what would jump out uh, probably like, actually more was um, when he, before he came to work for Henry VIII and he was a, uh, an MP 
and he had did a lot of different projects in the city of London. One of his great projects was to one to improve the sewers. Um, so he was quite a practical person. And he, he obviously placed a lot of importance on the idea of hygiene and, you know, maybe um, probably, you know, from what we know of uh, life in London at that time, uh, would have been smelly and dirty and uh, cramped. And I, I think that, you know, it's the aesthetic qualities of utopia that sort of jump out at me. You know, it's it's a place that uh, has wide streets. It's uh, clean. Um, it smells good. They actually uh, sprinkle perfume on the air when people are eating. So there's actually quite a lot of pleasures in utopia. Um, so, yes, I, I, I that's that's what sort of jumps out at me. I, so I, I don't think that it's an out and out. I don't think it's either. I think, again, that the the title sort of tells us that um, this is this is elusive. Right. And it's almost like more put, played a practical joke that's still being played out today because we're still wrestling with the, you know, the degree to which he was serious. All right. So we've gotten kind of a picture of what the society in utopia looks like. But for the average person going through the average day, mm-hmm. what is the average day like and how what role does money play and what, uh, wh- where is equality in all this? What is the practical effects of this? If I were to live there, what would it be like for me? Right. Well, you would, you would live in um, a large sort of communal house with a lot of families. Uh, it's actually, um, it, there is no money and no private property. And in fact, people mock uh, gold and silver and the, the prisoners in Utopia are, 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 um, have to wear gold and silver and everybody laughs at them. Um, uh, it's very hierarchical. So that's another thing that, you know, I mean, they may they may have had no private property, but it certainly wasn't. Ega- it's not egalitarian. Um, it's very hierarchical in that there are clear uh, leaders. Each town has a kind of um, prince. Men and women are not uh, equal. They they have um, clear roles. Um, for example, that wives confess uh, to their husbands at the end of every month, I believe, um, what where they've gone wrong. Uh, children defer to adults. Intellectuals, uh, basically everybody works in utopia, but intellectuals may form a kind of elite if they show um, promise. They they're expected to go off and do intellectual work. Um, there's quite an appealing emphasis on education, though, and I think in Utopia, um, education is promoted for everybody. There's what always comes into my mind is what I know about Thomas More's own house. Um, More uh, married twice, and he had a lot of kids, and he also adopted um, several, uh, two girls actually, and I think one other person. He he had a he had a house which. Uh, which for a long time housed Erasmus. Erasmus wrote in Praise of Folly there. Um, Moore had a school in his house where where the ma- males and females were educated. And apparently this was, I mean, we know this is quite rare at the time, but it also served as a kind of inspiration for other nobles at the time who, um, because of what Moore did, he uh, they adopted the same policy. So, uh, you know, this is, Something that Moore himself, you know, men and women are educated in Utopia, and 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 so they were in Moore's house. Another thing is that Moore employed a fool. That's a detail that I like very much, and it shows what was important for him: laughter. 
Um, and we know something about the way this all looked because Holbein the Younger painted and drew the family. Um, and we see a sort of large, very sort of uh, um, serious, but sort of there's an air of merriment about them. So there are some parallels between between Utopia and, and Warzone House. All right, here's the thing. Mm-hmm. I, I'm trying to figure out what he accomplishes with a work like this if it's not crystal clear what his intentions are, such that people still argue about it now. If he Is he trying to say this kind of society can't exist? If so, why can't it exist? Why doesn't he write a book showing the pitfalls of this type of society so it would be super clear? I mean, is he... Let me put it this way. If he's just trolling us, to right. use a modern term I don't much care for, yes. what's the fun of trolling if the people don't know they've been trolled? But on the other hand, I'll give you the example of my very good friend Michael Malice, the king of the trolls yes. on Twitter. Yep. And on Twitter, he will troll somebody forever, and I want to jump in and say, you stupid idiot, he's just trolling you. But he gets <laughs> very – now, he doesn't get upset at me because he likes me. But if any old stranger were to come along and say, look, he's just trolling you, it would drive Michael crazy. But I want to say to Michael, the whole fun of it is to say, look, you idiot, he's just playing with you. To me, that's the whole fun. But to Michael, the whole fun is not having the person know. So maybe I'm off base. But I I guess I just need to know what is the point of the book if we can't even be sure what the heck the point of it is. Why write it? Well, I mean, as I say, Moore did have a strong um, kind of comical spirit, but I don't think that the book is completely uh, unserious. I think I really do think that it's both. Um, the first part of the book that you, you mentioned, uh, uh, Moore himself is a character in the book, and he talks to Hithliday, who's the traveler who's come back and reported um, on on his travels. And by the way, uh Utopia uh, is a kind of parody of uh, travelogue um, because this is not long after 1492 and the discovery of America. And all of a sudden we had this widening of our horizons as Europeans and a sense that anything could be out there in the world. And some texts were starting to come back from um, Amerigo Vespucci and, of course, Columbus. Um, And uh, in fact, uh, the the character in Utopia claims that he has voyaged to the new world with Amerigo Vespucci and essentially Utopia is, we could say Utopia is America in some way that Utopia is um, this, this, you know, this thing that's out there. Um, there are also hints in it here and there that it could be Atlantis, the, the fabled disappeared um, Island. Uh, so there, there are echoes of, um, Plato. There are echoes of uh, definitely, you know, and in fact, he invokes Plato at the very beginning. Um, I really do think that that the that the layered quality of Utopia can't be overstated. I mean, it's uh, it was called by John Ruskin the most mischievous book ever written, and uh, and so it it is at once this uh, this reference to the kind of new horizons that were opening up and all the excitement that, that was going with that. And it sort of, it purports to be this, this report from the Americas. And yet it's clear, you know, it's fairly, it's clear that it's also a, um, you know, there's an insistence on the, on the fictional in it. But what, in, in the first part, um, more as a character is talking to Hithliday about, 
the role that uh, whether philosophers should should go to court and whether they should advise kings, which is quite an interesting an interesting sort of irony, I suppose, because it was long before Moore himself was uh, invited to court. He had to be invited many times because he actually had um, a lot of doubt about this. He himself didn't want to go to court. Um, he was worried that uh, Henry was already expressing some sort of, he was showing some hints of being a tyrant. And um, he said something to the effect of, you know, I would, uh, he would, you know, although he liked Henry uh, in some ways, you know, he would quite happily give away my head if he thought that would get him a little bit of uh, territory in France. Um, so Moore was feeling, you know, he, one thing that he's dealing with in Utopia is this question of the role of the philosopher. And one at one point, Hithliday uh, warns him, he actually says something which would turn out to be prescient, which is that his his morals as a philosopher might come into to conflict with what he finds at court and uh, might result, it might have bad results for him, which is exactly what happened to Moore. So I really think, you know, that he's he's just playing a kind of, he, he's doing something quite complicated with Utopia. And for such a small book, it's certainly generated a lot of response. Um, so it's, it's, it's not just a mere practical joke. I'm not trying to say that we should just dismiss it and say it's, it's only that. But I suppose... I mean, it's definitely a, a riddle for conservatives because I think that people assume that Moore was some sort of proto-communist, and indeed the communists claimed him. But I, I don't, I don't think that uh, you know. So maybe that's um, something that we're still trying to figure out. More on utopia, so to speak, after we thank our sponsor. Folks, I do a lot of traveling, and one thing that makes my travel experience a lot easier and more pleasant is my away suitcase. It is by far my favorite suitcase. I have one of their two sizes of carry-on, and they've somehow managed to make it extremely strong and yet lightweight at the same time. It glides along very smoothly because it's got four 360-degree spinner wheels, and it can charge anything that's powered by a USB cord. In fact, one charge of your suitcase will charge up your iPhone five times. Comes with a lifetime warranty and a 100-day trial. Try it out. If for any reason you decide it's not for you, return it for a full refund, no questions asked. But you won't because it's amazing. And how about this? For 20 bucks off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com woods and use promo code woods during checkout. That's 20 smackers off a suitcase by visiting awaytravel.com slash woods and using promo code woods at checkout. Of course, ever since the publication of Utopia, there have been countless examples of utopian thinking, utopian projects, actual attempted utopian communities. And this is a strain that we see in American history. In the 19th century, it was not uncommon to find a different uh, like Charles Fourier was rather influential in the in the U.S., and there were people who started communities based on his ideas, and they they really were based on um, a kind of a central planning approach, but on a small scale and on a kind of radical egalitarianism. There were different kinds of utopias where the idea was the one thing that seems to keep them linked is the idea that in society as we know it, there's some institutional barrier to 
happiness. And so for some people, it was private property. And there you had these utopian communities where they would get rid of private property. These communities never lasted more than a couple of years, uh, any of them. Or the John Humphrey Noise community, which was uh, exclusive monogamy was a problem. So we'll solve that problem by not having that. And so whatever it was, there's there's some one thing that's causing all these different social problems. And that was a way that a lot of reformers in general thought in the 19th century. Maybe it was alcoholic drink, and that's leading to problems. Or it was ignorance, which is why we need education. So there was a kind of utopian streak running through so many reformers. Horace Mann, Mm -hmm. who was the great pioneer of public education in the U.S., actually said at one point that it was his view that 90% of crime is a result of ignorance and and being deprived of education. That's that's utopian. That's the idea that there's an institutional barrier to social perfection. If we get rid of that barrier, we'll have it. That's just all over the place. Now, I see in your history that you've written a book on the idea of utopia and its implementation in British Columbia. What's that all about? Yes. Uh, Well, I was born in Vancouver myself. Um, I was very inspired by this because actually as a kid, I, uh, well, I was brought up by hippies and um, lived on communes, which of course are utopian communities. Um, We lived on more than one commune and um, they also experimented with the back to the land movement, which involved uh, going and living basically like the settlers did and abjuring um, electricity and um, all mod modern conveniences. Um, so I, uh, as a way of kind of partly writing about that, um, and kind of trying to come to terms with that history, I decided to begin, um, researching utopian communities in British Columbia because there were so many of them, um, going back to the 19th century, actually. So British Columbia is, uh, the, the furthest Western province of British Columbia um, there's a kind of the reason that the, the the confluence that really attracted me was first of all the the notion of nowhere in utopia and the fact that British Columbia certainly when I was growing up was a kind of nowhere land nobody really seemed to know where it was they really didn't seem to know much about it there was a huge amount of land that still could be uh, it was kind of like the last frontier it still is in many respects a, a kind of last frontier. Um, so it was this grand utopian space, which was filled with, uh, hippie projects when I was growing up, but, but there were some, uh, very ambitious, uh, utopian projects, socialist, uh, Finnish, um, utopian community. One was called, uh, Sointula, which means harmony. There was one that was founded, it was called Metla Katla, and it was, um, it was founded by an Anglican clergyman for the benefit of of Native uh, people, Native American, um, as we say in Canada, First Nations people, to try to give them a a safe and orderly existence um, when this uh, when there was a, quite a wild um, group of settlers around. Um, so there were oh there were and there was. One other thing called the Emissaries of Divine Light, which is a sort of kind of a theosophist uh, community. So the idea that all religions are one. There's more than one theosophist community, actually, that was around in the 20s. So there were, I basically felt that utopianism was really strong, a really strong current in, in British Columbia, as it, as you've demonstrated that it was in the United States. I mean, and that's uh, that's what drew me to that subject. 
I'm curious about whether we can think of utopia as necessarily being a left-wing idea, because it doesn't nece- it doesn't have to be. Um, I'm trying to rescue it from that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the what I was describing was based on the idea that human beings are perfectible, and it's not really their fault that things aren't working out so well. It's just our institutional arrangements are screwy, right. and if we could adjust those, things would uh, things would flow smoothly. Now, I could imagine a libertarian kind of so-called utopia, but it wouldn't be a utopia where we would try to claim that there will be no problems, there will be absolute social harmony, because if we believed that human beings were capable of you know, doing that, we wouldn't have nearly the skepticism of government that we have. So I think it's possible to say we could imagine a libertarian society as a counterfactual and then say in this society we would have all these good consequences, but I wouldn't want to describe that as a utopia because I think you'd always have problems just because of the of human nature. This is the problem with this word. Uh, nobody wants to be called a utopian nowadays because it sounds like a prescription for disaster, basically, right? Um, especially after the 20th century with a with in particular with totalitarianism. And also people think it shows your head is in the clouds and yes. you're not a serious thinker. Yeah, nobody, uh, of all the people I interviewed, you know, I was classifying them as utopians, but nobody was happy with that word. Nobody wanted to be a utopian. Um, the popular term was uh, intentional community, well, at least uh, it's certainly very popular on the left. Um, Utopian communities are always a sort of reproach to the mainstream. Uh, you're right. They always um, imply a problem with, with, with the larger society. Um, and sometimes, you know, their cr- critiques are, are correct. I mean, it's not uh, completely ridiculous. Um, they, they serve as a kind of laboratory, I think, for, for certain ideas, which can be, which we can, which we can t- try to play out. If we, Sort of, I, I do think an understanding of utopia's built-in, um, you know, the built-in idea that that the good place is well, the perfect place is not. We're not going to find it in this world, but that doesn't mean we can't try. Um, as you've suggested, I mean, there are well, there are some current uh, communities that we could define as libertarian utopias. Um, there have been, and I'm sure they'll all be unhappy with being. Uh, being named that, but um, nonetheless, as if we can define a utopian community as having a degree of isolation and being animated by ideals, which which can be articulated, um, you know, many things fall under that umbrella. Uh, some people see um, the Atlantis, uh, or also known as Galt's Gulch, and um, Atlas Shrugged as a as a fictional utopia. And then, of course, there are a number of libertarian projects. Um, I would include the Free State Project under that um, banner. There have been uh, the seasteading projects could be classified as as utopias, potentially. I, I, I find that the libertarian utopias, um, they, they tend to be less prescriptive and they tend to be more playful. Um, I don't know if you're aware of Sealand, the... Um, country that was founded uh, off the coast of England here, off the coast of Norfolk. No. It, it, uh, basically, it's on an old oil rig platform, and it was in the 1960s, I believe, um, and they were operating a pirate radio station there, and they, they basically 
managed to designate it as a country and they have passports and they they became like they appointed themselves the royalty of of sealand so there was an obituary for um the princess joan of sealand recently in the in the telegraph <laughs> oh how about that now when it comes to libertarianism our critics often suggest that libertarianism per se is utopian, mm-hmm. not necessarily the free state project or seasteading or any of these other collective sorts of projects, but the very philosophy itself is utopian. And that I have very strenuously objected to yes. because I think it's based on a misunderstanding of what we're saying. It's uh, First of all, it's based on, at least my version of it, is based on the non-aggression principle. The non-aggression principle does not actually say if nobody aggresses against anybody else, you'll have a great society. It just says you're not allowed to do it. Right. It's morally wrong for you to do it, regardless of the consequences. So there's actually nothing utopian about that. But if I were to say if there were less aggression in the world, I think we would be able to solve our problems better, well, that's a debatable proposition. Again, it's not utopian. It's not immune to evidence. But we get this analysis that we're just utopian because we're not in, we're not so interested in the day-to-day debates about governing and this bill or that bill, and we're too ethereal and focused on principles. But I don't think that's utopian. I think that's a misnomer. Um, or the, uh, yeah, I suppose the, I, I guess the critique is that, um, that this uh, libertarianism is very focused on how people ought to be ideally or how societies ought to be ideally, but they're not going to be like that because of the, because of the uh, grim realities, maybe, um, you know, imagining that, well, the non-aggression principle um, is, is a wonderful ideal, but what if, you know, other countries then aggress against us and where are we? Is that sort of critique that you hear? Yeah, the, that that would be – they could say that – now, that would be at least a legitimate beginning of a discussion. If they're going to talk about foreign policy and they're going to say libertarians just seem to think that if you pl- have a good neighbor policy or you're, you, you observe the golden rule that nobody's ever going to bother you, and uh, that's not true, then we, we would have to argue that out. And we'd have to say that we don't necessarily say that, that – that nobody will ever bother you, but that you can probably minimize or eliminate a lot of conflicts that do exist and then focus on those cases where, despite your best efforts, you just can't keep the bad guys away. So I think even there, we're not being utopian. We're, we're, I, would, I would turn it around and say I think the interventionists are the utopians who think the world is just one more U.S. intervention away from enjoying peace and prosperity when every single time they do it, it winds up a disaster. That's the utopian. They can't even see that the, everything they do blows up in their faces. Yeah, yeah, this Arab neocon attitude, like, we'll just go and to, to Iraq, and we'll just pop over there and turn Iraq into the United States within about five years. Yeah, yeah, just totally nuts. Well, listen, I appreciate this uh, this discussion. I'm going to talk more about utopian ideas, because that that's a really, really interesting discussion. There's, of course, the, the interesting Edward Bellamy book, uh, Looking Backward, as part of American history in the 19th century, right. where he— proposes to look to, you know, he writes a story where he's looking back on the past from the point of view of somebody, I believe, in the year 2000 and how much better things are because they're scientifically arranged and all that than they had been 100 years ago. Yeah. There, there's This is definitely fertile ground for future conversation. So I appreciate you uh, contacting me about Thomas More. I thought, yeah, we, we got to get this going. Thanks so much. Thank you.
All right, that is it for today. I have no closing banter to share with you other than thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing these episodes on social media to help me build the audience, spreading the word, forwarding the links to your friends. Let's see what we can do to get even more listeners in 2018. Thanks, everybody. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.